0: It's cut in half, I think, in the last 10 years, the use of coal for our electricity. But this is a region where, as we transition, we don't want to forget about the contribution to our country, I think. But yeah, these people were, in fact, it's a part of their heritage and their work, and they're working there. And then the conflict of knowing, are we being put in harm's way, and sort of conundrum, if they tell, if they Talk about that? Would they lose their job? Would there be retribution? There are a lot of issues like that. Has it really been eliminated? There are still impoundments. Now, I'm not an expert about what impoundments are out there. But you said, you know, can we change this? I think we have. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi.
1: Hello, fellow do and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more deeply with you about things like energy, green energy, dirty energy like coal, and the extractive business practices that have gotten us into our present predicament, but to do this through the power of story. The reality is that we experience worsening disasters, floods, fires, out-of-control weather systems that create sometimes perilous conditions for many. The global South suffers. Rural areas, they get hit the hardest. So today we get to explore all of these topics and more as we get to know Isabel Reddy. Isabel Reddy began her career in clinical research as a science writer, and this is something that shows in her work. She's been a guest columnist for numerous newspapers, and she is working on her MFA in writing at Goddard College. Ms. Reddy lives in North Carolina with her husband and German shepherd, Mack. This is her first novel that we're going to talk about today, and it's called That You Remember. Isabel, I'm just going to welcome you right up to the stage and say thank you for joining me today, and thank you for this beautiful book.
0: Thank you for having me, and I appreciate your kind words.
1: Reading is something I really enjoy and often don't make enough time for outside of the space of nonfiction, often for the nonfiction authors I'm making time for on this show as I'm learning more about the crisis that we confront in a variety of capacities, whether it be socially or from a sustainable and climate action perspective. And I felt like I was transported to my teen years in a way when I was able to just ravenously read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, just through your prose. And in fact, found myself reminded of her work
0: as I read this. Thank you. That's incredibly high praise. I appreciate that.
1: It was not something I necessarily expected. As we get started, I'm just saying thank you for writing this. And I'm somebody who has read a lot of realist works in my time because I enjoy the perspective of works that really transport you into the reality of what living in a particular time and situation could be. The questions that I have for you that relate to this partly come from your experience and wanting to bring this story to light in the first place, but then into just really having a discussion about how you're able to transport yourself in two different times in the reality of this book. Why don't we start with that? What compelled you to write that you remember?
0: In addition to my writing career, I have 30 years experience teaching. I've taught about every age that exists. And when I went into the school age, I started with adults, I and then I taught preschool, and then went into the school age. I taught the alternative learner in a school for students that were removed from the public school. And in that, in the Durham Public Schools curriculum, we read Kai Erickson's, he's a sociologist, and he did a study of the Buffalo Creek, West Virginia area and the results of the disaster of February 26, 1972. It was called Everything in Its Path, that book. We studied it. I taught it. They did dioramas and projects. And in reading about that, I read that Pittston Coal Company was the responsible coal company. I don't know if you know, Karina, but my father was a past president of that coal company. Really triggered my interest. And then 10 years after that, Unbeknownst to me, on my doorstep arrives a giant box with all of my father's desk diaries. My brother sent it to me, knowing kind of I was the archivist of the family. And those two things together, and my desire to write a novel, to make foray into that, work together. And then I began the research. And when I met the people, it really became sort of a fire in my soul, really. It became a passion for me to write it.
1: So let's talk about what that fire in your soul was really ignited by. I mean, this is a disaster that hit a very small town and people lost their lives because we had the company in that area had basically eschewed the environmental protections that were in place and continued to mine and create Slurries or that eventually would flood and break free, right? How many people were affected by this? I mean, the whole town, what does that really look like? And is that reflected within the fiction of your novel, or is or is that somewhat expounded upon? I'm curious.
0: The disaster happened. It started before Pittston acquired Buffalo Creek Mining. They had three dams. They were grossly out of all compliance, out of all common sense, really. They were built. Basically, like putting gravy in mashed potatoes. And they called it a dam, and that was a bit of a euphemism. Like mashed potatoes, they were crushed gravel, two results of the production of coal. One is slag and crushed rock that you separate from coal, and one is the water you use. So they made these egregious pond impoundments. And it was they were at the top of hole hollow in my book. I do try to explain the topography of the conical mountains and the steep hollows which they called hollers this particular one was a 10 mile stretch of little communities like beads on a necklace strung on a 10 mile stretch and the wave that was formed well i shouldn't give it all away because people might want to write, read the book
1: but it's based on a, something that actually happened like you're essentially you're fictionalizing the story you create these fictional towns but it's all and the fictional company rowan coal right but it's really based on a true story and then some romance and other things are brought in to keep the story moving which i think is also what made it such a, a joy to read but you're you're essentially tackling one of the most challenging things that we confront in this time which is that there is a man-made cause of some of these disasters that we confront that we build in extractive business practices to make a buck and and there are corporate interests that often push regulation or push people to turn the other way and allow for nefarious practices to exist, even when regulations are in place to control for that and to protect people. When we're living in a time like today, when we're politically divided and when one side is saying we need less regulation and the other side is saying we need more Who's stuck in the middle is often the rural communities that are left in peril when something like this happens. I know that changes had been made after and since, like we haven't seen these this magnitude of a a coal disaster in the United States since, at least from what I saw. I mean, what what can we learn from these past experiences today? Is that part of the intention of the book? (laughs) To say, look.
0: Absolutely.
1: Let's not sweep this under the carpet.
0: And therefore my title, for so many reasons that we remember. Yeah, you've put all of that so well. Basically irresponsibility, negligence, stupidity, careless design without check for numerous years with regard to in this particular disaster. And um, unlike many coal disasters, uh, Farmington and uh, many other ones, it wasn't strong miners who signed on to work as a miner and take that risk. It was largely women and children that were the victims. It, it occurred on a Saturday morning. People were home cooking bacon. They hadn't even let the dog out of the house, literally. Pouring Cheerios, watching TV. And this happened. And we're talking about sort of one industry regions. These... Regions started 150 years ago and produced the coal that built our country. And I think that's important to remember. We've won both world wars, it built the steel industry. And up until about 20 years ago, we had a much higher percentage. It's cut in half, I think, in the last 10 years, the use of coal for our electricity. But this is a region where as we transition, we don't want to forget about the contribution to our country, I think. But yeah, these people were, in fact, it's a part of their heritage and their work and they're working there. And then the conflict of knowing, are we being put in harm's way and sort of conundrum? If they tell, if they talk about that, would they lose their job? Would there be retribution? There are a lot of issues like that. Has it really been eliminated? There are still impoundments. Now, I'm not an expert about what impoundments are out there. But you said, you know, can we change this? I think we have. But this novel was set loosely based on the Buffalo Creek disaster, which happened six years after the Aberfan disaster in Wales, which was depicted, if you saw The Crown, the third season, I think third episode, where not a slurry pond which has the liquid, it was a the coal slag, the gob pile, the crushed rock slid and smothered to school. We really do need to disseminate the information. And I think the reason why I detached my novel from one specific event is to have more global relevance as we continue to have industries that can put people at risk. That's why I sort of detached it from one specific event, because these kinds of things are still happening and do happen.
1: I touched on this in a recent episode when I interviewed Maya Van Rossum, who I'd invited back for the second time on the show, as we talked about the new debt ceiling deal, which had just passed through. And as a surprise to environmentalists, there were a couple of things that were kind of shoved in to that bill that essentially said that we were going to greenlight some more drilling and fracking that were in, let's say, a contentious back and forth and not looking like they'd be likely to go forward otherwise. Even from a regulation standpoint, it feels like sometimes we don't remember. I realize now we're talking about something that's different than coal, but fracking also damages environments, and it's also something that can damage water supply, which is something that's also something we should consider to be a human right, clean drinking water, the ability to have a safe environment and live a healthful life. And yet sometimes politically charged situations mean that we sometimes have these unpopular ideas get shoved into bills that are otherwise popular. And so it seems like we're in a situation where we often forget. (laughs) And so... I understand you have a website dedicated to that you remember. And what is that again? Is it that you remember.com. Now I wanted to talk for a moment about the characters that you really dive into in this story, because I think it helps us really see all sides of the issue and that's something I really admired about this work, given that it is tackling a sensitive topic, like something that's a disaster that ended in people's losing their lives and their community. Their livelihood, their everything, right? You have central in this story a woman who has, like yourself, been gifted the journals of her father on his passing and the ledgers, and happens to find a simple note that spiked her curiosity and sent her into the hollow where the story takes place. Your story then goes back and forth between 2019 and 1970. And You've architected the story in such a way that we're seeing glimpses of characters from the earlier story into the newer one. And I think this is also what makes it a page turner. I'm sitting there going, well, what happens next? Are we going to encounter this earlier character or did they expire in the disaster that struck? You know that it's happened because it's a kind of flashback series of stories are being told. And as I shared before we started this recording, I'm on chapter 41, which is just pages before the finish. So I'm on the cliffhanger or perhaps the denouement. Everything's kind of coming to a close rapidly. What can you tell me about the characters you've developed and did they come from your life? How did you really research them, develop them so that they had this kind of full, whole perspective and really made you think about each person's side of the story, so to speak.
0: I could speak from the position of Alina, the 2019 woman who goes to find out about something that her father may have had an affair, because I did grow up in the home of a coal executive. And I did, in fact, not know a tipple from a pickle. That was realistic.
1: Well, neither did I when I started reading it.
0: (laughs) Turn at the tipple and I thought, well, that would be easy. So that was totally like true. The only thing my father ever said was turn off the lights. He wanted us to turn off the lights. And I figured this out as I was writing the books because sometimes if we were traveling, he'd say, don't turn off the lights. So I think if we were traveling and they bought his coal, he wanted the lights on it, but at home where they weren't buying his coal, he didn't want that part from my own experience. But I will let you know that in the early part of figuring out if I was gonna write this book or where I would go with it, I did research, a lot of research, tons of books, lots of travel to the Appalachian region and the internet. And I saw the videotape Buffalo Creek Revisited and a woman is interviewed on that and she reads a poem. And that poem and that woman, and she's about my age. She became my protagonist, she became my Sarah. She lived and breathed inside of me is all I can say. And her poem, I have it right here. It's all about forgetting and remembering, forgetting and remembering, and it's so moving. And the other thing was in her interview, towards the end of that movie or what have you, she said, sanity is remembering. And I felt like I took that baton I wanted to run with it. In some ways I wrote it for her. (laughs) The other characters, actually some came from books, that beautiful photography books of that region, Lots of interviews on the ground, going to into homes. I went to their churches with them, met different people, went to the memorial events for the disaster in Buffalo Creek. So that's where I sort of fleshed out other characters, what their lives were like. Lots of questions.
1: <laughs> you also really, I think you hone in on this whole idea of a small town that's got a single industry and where anybody from outside the town is seen an outsider and how the culture of the region kind of stands up around that, how welcoming and warm one of these small towns can feel on one stripe. But then if you've moved there as an outsider, how you can also always be made to remember that in some way that you're not from around these parts, right? Yeah. And I wondered if that was connected to a personal experience you'd had if you had grown up in a a smaller town and if it's something that you kind of still see there in doing your research.
0: I absolutely saw that there. I didn't grow up in a small town, but it seemed to me from my experience talking to people that geography of that region is so specific that people were reluctant to say what it was like in a different county of the same state. That was certainly the case. And what was your other question?
1: Is this a problem of the past? Or does it still feel like certain parts of this territory are kind of stuck in an earlier time in a way where it's like outsiders are more always treated as other, as opposed to feeling like it's an embraced community.
0: What you're seeing in my novel, in the majority of the novel, which is in 1970 is a period of time when the unions were still very strong. And there were a lot of strikes. People would strike. They would strike a lot, sometimes for non-coal-related issues, sometimes for, I've heard like school books or just non-coal-related issues, and they would call wildcat strikes. The feeling of them and us was very strong then. So when a coal operator came to town, numerous people told me that the restaurants would clear out if the coal operator walked in and... I don't think that as relevant today as it was then. I think that was a period of time, but as I say, still now people who have lived in those regions all their life are sometimes reluctant to say what it's like in 50 miles away in a different county.
1: What's interesting to me about that is like I've traveled for time in France and into some all over Europe, really, and found that outside of the big cities, once you got into a rural area. Even if you're only an hour from Paris, people didn't just want to get in their car and drive to Paris or an hour outside of London. They lived there. They didn't make it to London. Whereas here, you're an hour from San Francisco. It's like, well, yeah, I'll go to the city for an evening or something to that effect. And I think part of that is that we're, as a country, pretty spread out. And the culture from, let's just say, a suburb of San Francisco or even San Jose to San Francisco isn't that varied and that different. But when you're in some of these areas where there's kind of less mobility between counties, that they feel like different worlds. And the culture can vary. The way people approach even just their relationships can vary. And you're living in a little bit more of a smaller community that's more connected and where those outside don't necessarily get a view. And I guess where I'm really kind of heading with this whole conversation is we've lived in a world for the past several years where people have commented on this idea of a good portion of America feeling like it had been left behind. And many parts that especially those that are connected to industries that might be fading out, like coal, right? Where we're relying less on coal today and more on solar. We're relying less on extracting minerals from the ground and more on technology. There are entire counties, entire regions. I mean, West Virginia is somewhat rural as a whole, Appalachian Mountains, etc. And I think we're facing this unique challenge today where it's hard to get a view for what it would be like to be in that community, either in the 70s or today. And I even had this question as I was reading the book just really wanting to go there and explore and see what it's like now, because I felt like I got a really good glimpse of what it might've been like when I was growing up as a kid and really have no idea what it would be like to live there today with the expiration of some of these coal mining operations.
0: It was another world for me. It absolutely was. I went on roads where there were sheer rock walls and sheer drop-off I actually tried to get a picture and I shouldn't have (laughs) and giant coal trucks and miles and miles with no mailbox and the region that I did most of my research and met most people for the novel my one contact she said we're hoping for a family dollar
1: what's a family dollar
0: it's a store that kind of sells everything like a dollar store
1: oh okay
0: There are some regions it's very restrictive with regard to shopping opportunities and having to go a long way for that and so you're absolutely right and i live in north carolina in the triangle area almost impossible for me to imagine that it would be so restricted what where i could go to get milk or anything like that i saw many many families with multiple generations living close together in the same house It's in my book where the young miner comes in, he gives his grandma this big hug, and you see a lot of that.
1: Really strong family connections, multi-generational. Yeah, this is something I actually dug into a bit when I was in graduate school doing a a project for a business school. And it was related to this question about what would happen if the post office no longer existed. Because we were going into this moment where Was looking very much like the usps could be dismantled or privatized and what we didn't really understand what i think most americans didn't understand is that you know there are entire swaths of this country that are serviced by usps that ups and fedex won't touch because it's simply not profitable to get there we live in a world where we've increasingly gone to shopping online where it's been harder and harder to have a brick and mortar be it a dollar store or anything else really Unless you're talking about massive chains and fairly developed areas, there would be entire swaths of the country where people literally wouldn't have the ability to go to a bank branch office, to go get packages at their home, and to ultimately be able to live a more modern life, even if they chose to live rural, just because they'd have to drive an hour to the post office type thing. And now you're going to take that away and the post office might be right next to the bank and now without the post office to anchor the bank then the bank might go away because there's not enough people coming over there and we think when we live in these bubbles like i'm close to silicon valley that everybody has high speed internet access and that's just not the case i go to a friend's cabin and it's like a little vacation and it's kind of novel that there's no internet and you realize that it's really challenging to get internet in any of these places you might be working with a dish to get some TV or whatever, but you just don't have the ability to stream high-speed internet and watch your Netflix. You become kind of disconnected from where the current culture is. When you say something like, okay, well, they're hoping for a dollar store. That's what that brings me to because we have a beautiful country here. We have areas that are not as populated that have become national parks and they're great we get into them and we're able to explore these outdoor spaces. And then we actually have spots where people have chosen to live because they want to live in a more rural way, or maybe they're connected to farming or they, they came for industry and then the industry left and they don't necessarily always have an economic way out, even if they wanted to find one and they don't have the same internet access. And now we threaten taking away something like USPS or the social systems that support the area. And the impact that that could have is actually kind of dire. <laughs> I guess I just wanted to bring it up because it felt like it brought me to that too. I happened to grow up in a semi-rural area, so I think about these things and it really kind of takes me back to those moments of spending summers up in the mountains outside of southern Oregon and I mean now everybody has cell phones, but the time I was there it was like landlines would go down because there was a windstorm and you didn't even have phone
0: Right. And as you say, these people, they're not on vacation. They live there.
1: They're not on vacation.
0: It's not a choice. And I think I have my character, Alina, if you recall, when she wanted to find a place, she stopped and asked the local sheriff. And this happened to me. He says, do you know where the high school used to be? No. Well, do you know where the hospital used to be? No. There weren't signs on the road. I had to follow him. But there were so many, do you know where this used to be? Like so much has gone with the drop in, in coal, increase in machinery, using less coal. It's almost, I'll say, ghost town. So much has have left that area. But on the other hand, I think my novel shows that I was pretty surprised at the warmth, the graciousness, the openness that people showed me. I almost feel like there are numerous people, if I had to spend the night a flat tire or this or that, that, that they would open their arms to me they were so gracious the first time I went there I was prepared for the non-cell phone thing and I'm not so great with directions so I bought one of these it was called find me spot it was a long time ago the satellite thing to put on my dashboard so I could send an okay I'm okay or a SOS but they sort of laugh and say oh your cell phone won't work here the topography and just don't have the cell towers
1: right well there's part of me that says that's also beautiful i had the pleasure of interviewing a gentleman who had hiked all over the appalachian trail too on this show and it's an area i've always wanted to visit just to see nature and these beautiful ravines really how the world to get a glimpse of what it was like before we kind of started our progress from the east coast west because you do get into these really ravenous areas where there just is not there aren't a lot of people The country roads you mentioned the cliff faces and everything else i mean that's where you wonder okay well i want some safety dot or whatever that was because if i drive off the road in the middle of the night with like there's no street lights out here and you know what if my headlamps aren't bright enough and i don't see something and a deer comes out and i happen to swerve a little bit and end up in a very precarious situation you were thinking that through
0: it really happened to me that I got I didn't know what a tipple was so I this woman wanted to lead me to her place where I was going to stay and we finally found each other because then there was this another cliff drop off I didn't want to go and I so I followed this Dodge Caravan on the most steep cliff rugged, because I've hiked a lot of the Appalachian Trail, I've done tons of backpacking. You would hardly even take, it was was better than most backpacking trails, and here I was in the car fine, following her, and she was speeding around the corner, and I was like, I'm not going to get lost. When we finally got to her place, I said, it was hard to follow you. She said, well, you said you needed the restroom. At the Miner's Mart, there wasn't a restroom, so she stepped on.
1: I feel like you echoed that story in the book once or twice. Yeah. People that are very familiar with those roads will drive them like I probably drive Highway 17 here in Santa Cruz County. I remember when I was 16 and learning to drive, white-knuckling it the whole day. Now I'm just like (laughs) cruising along like it's no big deal.
0: Except there were boulders and there was water. and Yeah.
1: So what is a tipple? Why don't we explain that to the audience? Because we've mentioned it a few times now.
0: The tipple is when they pull the coal out of the coal face, out of the mine, it goes down in these hoppers and down conveyor belts to the production plant, which is the tipple. And there they separate the coal from all of the slate and slag and other rock and debris that is pulled out by the giant machinery. And they have to use high-pressured water to separate the coal from everything else. Then the coal goes into the dump trucks or trains or whatever and gets transported. That's what the production plant or the tipple does.
1: Yeah. it's just, I'd never even heard it referred to as a tipple before. I just think it's a coal plant. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of the way you do oil refinery here. I mean, I happen to know what an oil refinery looks like, but I drove by it for, I don't know, a decade before I ever asked the question, what are all those Giant cylinders up on that hill in Richmond. Oh, it's an oil refinery. It's multi stages and it's partly gravity fed.
0: Exactly. And I thought I would recognize it, but there are countless things coming out of the mountains that all of them could be tipples, as far as I was concerned. There are all these metal trams and machinery. So
1: I'm very much looking forward to the last few chapters of this book and finding out exactly what happens in these characters' lives, even though it's based on a true story. So I think I have an idea. <laughs> what's well, coming, right? Um, but I'm essentially at that that climax and the denouement that follows right now. Um, I have to know if you have other plans in place for other novels you're planning to write or um, another path that you're planning to pursue now that you're nearing the close of your MFA.
0: I am working on a new novel. It's very different than that one. It's more on the lines of auto fiction. I may be weaving two time periods, but it's a very different novel. It's not historical fiction. It's it's more of a personal story.
1: Well, I have to say I've appreciated the work. I enjoy thinking about the people who make a community, because that's so clearly and strongly stated in this particular work, and just the transportation through time in a way to my youth and thinking small town where I grew up, and then really kind of Spending a moment to reflect on what it would be like to be there today and really thinking about how we as a culture embrace communities from one to the next that might be very different, that might have different challenges and give rise to their voices and seek to understand perspective and ultimately ensure that no one is left behind and that we can all remember together. It's a beautiful book. Again, thank you for writing it and for coming on my show. I really enjoyed this book. I can't recommend it any more than I am. If you love fiction and you like to read and you enjoy realist depictions and maybe a little romance, it's a great book.
0: Thank you so much, Karina. And thank you for saying community a lot. I learned so much about community. I grew up outside of New York where if you stall at the green light, it's going to ram your bumper. and.
1: Hong Kong. I just came from New Jersey. I was there for a trip for my nephew's wedding. And I forget out here on the West, we don't really use horns that often, even when you might you maybe should have, you know what I mean? Like we don't use them that much. And in New Jersey, it's just like you're at a red light for two seconds, someone hasn't gone Hong Kong. And it's just like I called it New Jersey salute.
0: (laughs) I've driven a lot and in Boston and I'm so glad you said that. I learned so much. I saw so much community, and I'm trying actually to establish it in my life here that I'm not so anonymous. It's a wonderful region. I hope you can go sometime.
1: Yeah. Well, I have been mostly to the coast, it seems. I realize I don't think I've ever been to West Virginia. I think I've only driven maybe through a tip of it, possibly, along an interstate.
0: (laughs) It's beautiful. Like the song, Almost Heaven.
1: Yeah, Almost Heaven. That's right. There are places I've yet to go. Even the Grand Canyon, I've never been.
0: <laughs> Neither have I. I've seen it from 30,000 feet. Hey, can I look out your window?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Well, again, we have so many amazing communities here in the United States from coast to coast. And I really just think it's it pays us to spend time in them and getting to know them better. And to be able to do that from time to time from using the power of fiction, I think, is also an incredible journey and can open your mind. And I think that's the point that we should all be thinking about. Like, yes, maybe we're phasing out coal and we're phasing in other types of energy that are cleaner and greener for our environment. But that doesn't mean we phase out the people and the stories around them.
0: Right. And take a walk in their shoes, which is kind of what I was hoping my book would do.
1: Right. Really think about what it's like. Exactly. At this point in the interview, I always like to ask my guests if, there happened to be a question that I haven't asked that perhaps they wish I had, or if they wanted to leave my audience with something specific, a question or a thought that they wanted them to think about.
0: As I say, it was this poem by this young woman that inspired my whole book. And now I can share this with others. And if you know, probably don't, but I actually found a way through the people in that region to get in touch with her. And it turns out we have the same birthday. I think just the power of words that a poem could move me so much that wrote this book.
1: Well, the power of words and somebody who enjoys the written word, I'm sure that was part of the motivation too. practicing your own chops. And again, I, I so enjoyed it. I encourage everybody to pick it up. So you can find out more about Isabel Reddy and That You Remember by visiting thatyouremember.com. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to send our audience to?
0: This poem I found on the internet in the early part of my research to write this book, and it really took over and stayed with me throughout the years of writing this book. It's a poem by a survivor of the Buffalo Creek disaster, February 26, 1972, by a woman named Gail Amberge, and I will read it. It's Friday. Late on the summer side of this West Virginia town, wishing it was another West Virginia town, maybe on some other West Virginia riverbank, as beautiful as autumn in your mind. Here in this $75 room, I remember things and more things. I've forgotten nothing.
1: Lest we forget.
0: Lest we forget. The sanity is in remembering so that we can not repeat the past.
1: Yeah. I think that gets to this entire idea that is something I sometimes really battle and confront when we're talking about building a capitalistic society. It feels like many people think that one person is worth more than another. And I mean, I don't think any job is worth more than another, or any person is worth more than another. And yet we continue to build a society in which there are people that risk their lives for the work they do and where communities risk their lives for how they live. And that could be impending doom from wildfire or flood or disaster like this man-caused issue, this coal-related flood, this slurry and everything else that ended up burying and drowning people. It's through the power of the arts and things like that poem that you shake people up and you remind them, and we're all in this together. What what more can you say?
0: Right, and it happened 50 years ago. This event, Maya Novels loosely based, but there was just the train derailment with the toxic fluid coming out and people being evacuated in Ohio or the Flint, Michigan, or it's just on and on and on. There is a cost to these things, not only to the environment, but to people. And then remembering not only those things, but remembering the people, that fiction can have us make it sort of real that as we move forward, not to forget region that needs to be retooled and more ideas and more education. And it's a region that's really contributed to America. And writing this book, quite frankly, Karina has every time I turn on, it's changed me so deeply to make me appreciate it, that I can turn on the washer, that it will have electricity, and the ramifications of that.
1: The sacrifices that people made. Yes. Yeah.
0: And the whole kiss the minor goodbye, and the woman who told me that, she just teared up, and at both of these, memorial events i went to the 40th and the 50th because it took me 10 years to write the book a long time but at the 40th a gentleman was there it was about my age so i thought well i'll go talk to him and it turns out that it was the first and only event he ever went to he lives there he lost family members in it and it took 40 years for him to go to one event and i was told at the 50th he never came back and I spoke to him. I went to sat down and I said, Well, what kind of beer did you drink? What kind of cars? How did you fix your cars? You jacked them up. You submit. And you know what? I didn't ask him a word about the event. You know what? He turned to me and said, It was raining that night. And he just opened up and told me about his experience.
1: Wow. Well, thank you again so much for joining me today, Isabel. It's been such a treat to read your book, to have this time with you, and really to remind us all where our hearts and souls should should spend a moment. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much. It has been really, really good. I appreciate it.
1: It's such a treat to discover a new great author in the life of somebody like me. I'm, I'm a big fan of literature. I've read so much throughout the years. Discovering That You Remember has been one of my biggest treats of the year so far. Now, you'll see me holding up the image here. You see it's simply a coal pile and really the words emblazoning that you remember This book is an invitation on a journey to what it might have been like to be there at that particular time when we had this incredible disaster change the lives and trajectory of people just in a moment. There was a buildup, a long time of people eschewing regulations and making all the wrong decisions for the community, but it also is a story of the power of community. I want to leave everyone with this thought today. You can get your inspiration from any number of places, and sometimes it is listening to a song or a poem or reading a great book, discovering something new, thinking about what it might be like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. There's so many poignant stories told within its pages that I'm just going to recommend resoundingly everyone go and pick up a copy of this book today. You can do so by going to thatyouremember.com. The book is by Isabel Reddy and is available now. I will, of course, as always, include links with show notes. You can just visit caremorebebetter.com. And while you're there, I hope that you'll leave me a note about what you thought of today's episode. You can even leave me a voice message by tapping on the microphone icon in the bottom right hand corner. I'd love to hear your voice. I really am so grateful that you've joined us today and that you're a part of your own community, wherever you sit. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we can really do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can learn from one another, and we can embrace change in a positive way as we head forward even in a world with less coal and more green energy. Thank you. Thanks
0: for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.